Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Industries Podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. Today we're joined by our senior education researcher, Michael Johnston. Hi, Michael. Hi, nice to be here. We want to talk about your latest project. It's a rescue plan for our education system, a Save Our Schools manifesto for education reform. Well, we all know that the education system is in trouble, but what specifically made you write this document? Well, we've seen data out of the ministry and other sources that shows a real problem in literacy and numeracy with just a third of our young people able to write at a basic standard and only two thirds able to read at a basic standard. Numeracy is somewhere in between, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. We've got a problem with the whole curriculum. It's underspecified, it's vague, and it prioritises the wrong things. Yeah, we've got a problem with the curriculum, we've got a problem with the assessment system, we've got a problem with teacher education, we have a problem with teacher career structures, we have a problem with monitoring of education results, we've got a problem with the institutional setup of our education policy. Where do you want to start? All of those <laughs> things, and it's always hard to know where to start, and that's been one of the puzzles that I've grappled with as I've been writing this document. The thing is such a tangled knot of problems, where do we start to unpick it? So the point actually behind the new document which you've prepared and which we're going to release over the coming weeks in cooperation with the New Zealand Herald is to provide a comprehensive rescue plan for the education system, which is important, especially since it's an election year. That's right. Each one of those things that you mentioned is there in the manifesto and we have solutions to each one of those problems. So let we should we just go through all of this? Let's do that. Well, okay, then we'll start right at the beginning. At the beginning of your document, I see a whole chapter dedicated to the curriculum because that is the foundation of everything, right? Indeed, and Elizabeth Rata, Professor Elizabeth Rata, who's written the foreword for the document. And what a brilliant foreword. And it's a lovely foreword. Just wait for it, listeners. She would be very pleased to see the curriculum up front here because I know that that's her particular point of focus. What's wrong with the curriculum? Just to remind our listeners, New Zealand, of course, has a world-leading curriculum, so uh, we're told. Yes, well... It's <laughs> well, it calls itself it's a certain, curriculum. It's certainly unique. <laughs> its overall problem is that it's vague. Yes. It, it doesn't give remotely enough guidance in any of the subjects. It's Does short it, as well. It's very short, and it doesn't even refer to subjects. It refers to learning areas, and that in itself is a problem because it blurs together things that ought to be distinct. So, for example... We have a social science learning area that includes history and geography, but it, but it doesn't tease them apart at any point. And there are many other issues like that. And it tells you in two or three pages everything that students are supposed to learn in these areas over their whole school career. That's right. It's a, a series of bullet points that really offers teachers nothing of value. And we're talking about a document that in total is about more than 40 pages. And, and Indeed, and, and a good chunk of that is actually taking up, taken up with kind of distractions that, that don't even need to be there. So to call this a New Zealand curriculum is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's not a curriculum, it's a kind of sketch of a curriculum and if teachers were to follow it, they'd focus on the wrong things. So another problem is that it centres what it calls key competencies these are things like social skills, managing yourself, learning to think. And of course, those things are important for young people to, to grasp. But the point is that those skills or, the, or those behaviours are best learned tacitly. That means 
you know, schools have a role, but it's in the background of the way they're organised. So social skills are learned by modelling and by keeping harmonious and orderly classrooms and things like that. So they don't need to be in the curriculum. They should just be in the, in the water, as it were, in, in the school environment. So there's nothing in the current curriculum that is worth saving. We basically have to start from scratch. I believe we have to start from scratch. And what would a new curriculum designed by you look like then? Well, it would lay out subjects which are largely based on disciplines that exist outside schooling. So things like science, mathematics, history. It would also lay out in detail the way we need to approach literacy. It would structure it for teachers so that they knew where to begin and how to proceed at each step in order to ensure that young people learn those key skills to a point of competence. Such curricula exist. New Zealand once had one, right? Well, actually, the history of New Zealand's curriculum is a little bit patchy. There was a more detailed document that preceded the 2007 curriculum, but I think we can do better than that as well. And we can probably take inspiration from other countries well, as well. Well, the United Kingdom, or England in particular, has a new curriculum as of 2013, I think, and certainly that is the kind of thing I'd be aiming for. If people go online and look at the English curriculum, you, you'll see a lot of detail about how, for example, teachers should approach early literacy. The first things students need to learn, things like spelling, sound, mappings, laid out in, as I say, a lot of detail. And as far as education reform is concerned, the curriculum really has to be the starting point because everything else hinges on it. Well, I, I think that's one of two crucial starting points. For me, the other one is making sure that when teachers start their careers and, and come into classrooms, they know what they're doing in terms of how the human brain learns. Mm. But the two things work together. They certainly do. If you are a teacher, even if you're a well-qualified teacher, if you haven't got a curriculum, your job is a lot harder. That's right. So the curriculum is absolutely central, but so is making sure that teachers are equipped with the knowledge and skill they need to deliver that curriculum. So currently, our teachers aren't equipped to deliver this kind of knowledge? They're not as equipped as they should be, and that's because, with a couple of notable exceptions, the institutions that train teachers don't focus on the science of human information processing. So that is how memory works. Obviously, memory has a lot to do with learning and attention. That is the ability to concentrate and, and also the limitations of the human brain. So when we learn new things, we learn them slowly and deliberately and carefully. And the memory systems that we use to do that have a very limited capacity and they're easily overwhelmed. And that's why a lot of children suffer problems with learning literacy and numeracy because they get overloaded with different ways of doing things instead of focusing on the ways that work best. So our understanding of how the human brain works has really changed over the last 20, 30 years? Yes. The science of cognitive psychology, which is in fact the discipline in which I was trained, that's now, well, 70 years old, but certainly the last 20 or 30 years have seen a lot of focus on bringing its insights to bear on education, and we call that the science of learning. But that science of learning is relatively absent in how we train our teachers these days. Yes, I, I might think of the New Zealand Graduate School of Education in Christchurch. They do that well, mm. but, uh, but they're the exception. They're the exception. 
So what would it do to teachers if they were trained in these new methods? Well, it would give them a flying start in the classroom so that they actually knew how best to present information and how to pace it with children so that they didn't get overwhelmed. Could you give us an example of how that might work? Well, I think mathematics is a really good example because that, more than any other subject, is layered. It means that in order to proceed, you have to master the steps that you're going to rely upon to proceed. And it means that, for example, children need to know addition, subtraction, multiplication. That needs to become second nature before we proceed with things that that's going to be necessary for. So, for example, fractions depends on a knowledge of division and not just a knowledge but an intuitive be, understanding. An intuitive understanding and, and embedding its operation to, to the point of automaticity so that you can just do it without thinking about it. Because if you have to still thinking about think about it when you take on the next thing, then your brain gets overwhelmed. Mm. Mathematics is an interesting example because it is, especially in mathematics, where we have seen quite a lot of creativity, shall we say, on part of the ministry in the recent decades to try all sorts of new methods, but they were not grounded in neuroscience. No, there's, there's two basic problems with the way numeracy is taught in primary schools predominantly. One is that the ministry's advice is to try lots of different strategies for any given task. So several different ways of doing multiplication. Yeah, that's the famous numeracy project. Yes, that's guaranteed to overwhelm students and their parents. <laughs> and, and in fact, their parents. It's, it, it's completely opaque how it works a lot of the time. So that's one of the problems. And the other is proceeding too quickly when some children haven't mastered a particular step. And in mathematics, more than anywhere else, that leaves them behind. Because and, once you miss the board, that's it. Yeah, and to be honest, that's always been a problem. That, that problem isn't new. And it's why probably 70% or 80% of adults fear and hate mathematics because at some point they suffered a humiliation in education where they were made to feel stupid about it. They weren't. It's just that things went on too quickly and left them behind. And after that, it's very hard to catch up. Okay, so the two crucial points from your point of view are curriculum reform and teacher training. But there is more to that. There is the assessment system as well, NCEA. What would you do about that? Well, The basic problem with NCEA is that it cuts up assessment into lots of bits every year. So students will undertake multiple assessments in the same subject. And what that means is that the learning tends to be cut up just the same. Now that's not inevitably so. A teacher could actually teach a nice coherent course and then assess the units called standards separately, but that isn't typically what happens. Typically teachers will approach one standard at a time, teach the content for that, and then move on to the next one. The problem with that is that connections, critical connections, across the material in different standards are often not made. Now now the other big problem with NCEA is that it inculcates a credit accumulation mentality in both students and teachers. They worry about getting credits along the way instead of focusing deeply on the learning. And so we get this kind of approach where near enough is good enough and the, and the, and the credits will get awarded, but the learning isn't deep enough to, to really support further learning. It comes back to that 
issue again. So it's all about piecemeal what's happening under NCA. Yeah, that's right. So I believe that instead of having multiple assessments per year in each subject, we should have just two, one internally assessed and the other externally assessed. Now, when I say internally assessed, that means that the assessment itself would be run in schools. But I would reform the grading of that assessment so that it no longer was marked by students' own teachers that in fact got submitted to NZQA for marking. Now, I would do that marking at the end of the year alongside the exams. Why? Because that would overcome the credit accumulation mentality. We shouldn't be troubling students with accumulating grades and credits during the year. The focus should be on learning. Isn't one of the main problems also with NCA that we have more than 9,000 different courses under which you can collect these credit points? So there is no longer a clearly defined canon of knowledge that every student should have. 9,000 standards, standards, I would say, yes, rather, yeah. rather than courses. And, yes. and that's true. Most of them are hardly used at all, so it's actually not as bad as that. But yes, there is far too much variation across the country. So when you read this together with your curriculum reform, it would amount to defining a canon of knowledge and ensuring that it's properly tested. Yes, that's right. There should be room for vocational training in schools, but we should be really careful to make sure that every young person gets access to the disciplinary knowledge they need to be not only active in our economy, but good political citizens as well. You know, critical thinking and political thinking comes out of subject knowledge. It, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. Mm. And that's another problem with the curriculum is that it, it tends to treat critical thinking as, as this abstract skill that you can just acquire without knowledge. And, that, and that's not how it is. So we've talked about the curriculum, we talked about assessment and reform of NCEA, we talked about how we train our teachers, but there are also ways in which the schools actually operate on a daily basis, which you think need to be changed. Part of that, for example, concerns providing information to parents. What's yeah. your thinking about that? Well, at the moment, I'm a parent and, and I see school reports that I don't understand. And I, and I know a fair bit about the education system. I, I can only imagine what it's like for a majority of parents. You get kind of vague signals about curriculum levels, which span two or three year levels at school, and you really have no idea what that means. So we need much more specific information, especially in key areas like reading, writing, numeracy and, and science, where parents are really aware of just where their child is at and critically when things are going wrong so that they're able to put pressure on to get something done about that. Mm -hmm. And you also have ideas on how you would manage teacher careers. Yes. So at the moment we have a situation where teachers with a given level of experience are all paid the same. So basically teachers are paid for the amount of time that they've been teachers. There's some variation to do with their qualification. Yeah, and they get an upgrade basically every year until they've reached eight years in schools and then that's it. That's the end of their professional life as a teacher. Well, that's right. I mean, they can become heads of department but and that takes them out of the classrooms and that yeah. takes them out of, out of the classroom time. But that that's right. Basically, it's it's a generic model of pay irrespective of the quality of the teacher. And that to me is a, a problem. Because as we know, all teachers are exactly the same. So it would That seem. was irony. Uh, quite. Now, you know, I spent many years as an academic and academics have four tiers to their career structure. So there's lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor and professor. Now, when you're within one of those tiers, 
you can progress a certain amount each year and you get a, a bit of extra pay, but then you get to what's called a bar. And to cross that bar into the next tier, you have to submit an application. And that is a portfolio of evidence about your research, your teaching, your other contributions. And that's considered by a committee that then will either approve or not approve your promotion. And I'm suggesting something similar for teachers. And again, that's something that many other countries practice. Well, Australia certainly does. It has a four-tier structure just like that. It's not called lecturer and senior lecturer, but it's, it's that kind of approach. Mm. So it's only novel and radical by New Zealand standards, but actually commonplace elsewhere. Yes. And common sense, really. Well, it's, it is common sense, because we want, obviously, the best teachers to be encouraged to stay in the profession and also to take leadership positions, which doesn't necessarily mean not being in the classroom anymore, but mentoring other teachers and, and use, using their expertise to bring other teachers forward. And, and there indeed, are that, that there was something that we highlighted in one of our first education publications. And that's right. We sent our researcher at the time around the world to really see how other countries are handling exactly the same questions and found great models, for example, in Singapore as well. Yes. Yes, so the, mo the most successful education systems have yeah. a good career structure for teachers. Okay. And at the systems level, you would like to see some change too. So there is the New Zealand Council of uh, for Education Research. Yeah. You're suggesting some changes there as well. Yeah, this to me is, is a pressure point for positive reform across the education system. So the New Zealand Council for Education Research is set up and receives funding from the ministry to undertake research on our education system. Now, So it's the ministry's think tank, basically. Their research shop, yeah, I would say. Yeah, okay. Now, they do a really good job in some things. I think their psychometrics team that produces standardised tests and, and also gets commissioned to do various quantitative studies is excellent. They have really top people. And they have run a publication service, which also puts out some good stuff. But a lot of their research is too qualitative. It's too focused on what teachers think, for example, or it might be a survey or something like that. What we need to do is repurpose them a bit so that quantitative research is much more front and centre. And when the ministry wants to implement a new initiative, for example, the Modern Learning Environments one where they put in place billions of dollars worth of classrooms that were large and designed for a hundred or more students and multiple teachers, they should have got somebody like the NZCER to run a big pilot of that to see how it went, to see what the effects were on teaching and learning. They didn't do that. They implemented it on the basis of almost no evidence at all. And so really this isn't about the shortcomings of the NZCER so much as it is about the shortcomings of the ministry. And really the ministry needs to be using that organisation and that organisation needs to be set up so that any time there's a big new initiative coming along, it's properly piloted and there's an evaluation plan in place. So what about the ministry then? What would you do about them? Well, that's a broader question that has to do with... It's not in the manifesto, but it will be no, on your mind. There's, there's difficult problems across the public service, as you, you're well aware. And the Ministry of Education is just one example, particularly bad example in terms of its stewardship of education. Part of the, the issue is that it doesn't do proper research before it puts things in place. 
It also has promulgated for decades failed methods of teaching things like reading. And I've got to say, they've got a new common practice model for teachers on literacy and numeracy. And despite my hopes, it's uh, just as hopeless as things that came before. There's a, there's a little bit of lip service to what we call structured literacy, which is the, the best way of teaching those skills. But it's kind of buried at the bottom of the document underneath a pile of stuff that's just the same old. So now we've got your manifesto and it will be released, as I said, in installments in conjunction with the New Zealand Herald over the next few weeks. It is comprehensive. It covers practically every area in education that needs reform. It is based on really years and in some cases decades of research. I mean, we've done our own research here at the initiative and you have done that in your professional and academic life before and you've also sought a lot of feedback from practitioners in the system. So all of this has flown into this document. We've consulted widely, we've consulted with members. So the document provides a comprehensive reform proposal for our education system. But yes. what is the political likelihood of that ever being implemented then? Well, that might depend who the Minister for Education is after this year's election. So what, how hopeful are you that we will see, first of all, even a good discussion within the election campaign of education? Because so far it's just one of many topics and New Zealanders are currently talking about the cost of living crisis mm -hmm. and crime and all sorts of other issues. And education then comes as probably topic number four or five typically. Yeah. How do you make this a top issue in this election? Well, parents who are also voters have to get vocal about it. And I do understand that there are pressing issues in many households to do with, especially with the cost of living. And it's easy for education to take a little bit of a backseat there. I mean, all parents are concerned about education, but when they're more concerned about paying their mortgage next week or, or putting food on the table, that is obviously front and centre in their minds. And But it's also probably difficult for parents to understand whether it's just our child or whether it's just our school or whether there's something systematic about the whole yeah, education system. I think that's right. But actually, you know, I think more and more there is rising concern. I think more and more parents are becoming quite disquiet about how things are going at school, not only for their kids, but what they see in the, in the media about literacy and numeracy and other things. So is that the purpose of the whole manifesto, to well, tell parents you're not alone and... We hear that, you. That is how we generate political will in the end, is for politicians to hear loud and clear from voters, in this case parents who are voters, that they want real and effective change. Well, then let's wish you all the best for the launch of this document. I hope the campaign with the Herald goes well and that we will get the national discussion that we need to have to reform this education system because nothing could be more important for the future of this country. Thank you, Oliver. I quite agree. Thank you, Michael.